podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Charlie Kramer, who is the chief revenue officer and president of Slate. Slate, originally a text-based publication, but they were one of the earlier publishers to push into podcasting. Kelly, at this point, like how much of Slate's business is podcast-based? Yeah, so Charlie said it's about 50% or it will be about 50% this year. Um, yeah, you're right. Slate's been doing podcasting for close to two decades at this point. It's definitely something that they are serious about. He mentions how they have a couple different studios around the country that they have invested in to, you know, professionally produce these uh, products. Um, And currently they have, I think, between 25 and 35 shows that are active at different points in the year. And he mentions at one point that it's really not a scale play that they're going after. I mean, you look at like publishers like Vox, um, who have what is it, like over 200 podcasts or something like that in operation. And you look at like iHeartRadio and and some other, you know, bigger audio entities. He says that they're not after scale, but they're after, you know, I guess, brand affinity and more depth with their listeners, which is interesting. And so I wanted to speak with him to kind of get at how their audience strategy is leading into a advertising business and how that's been contributing to the growth in revenue that they're seeing. Um, He mentions, I think, about double-digit growth year over year for the past few years, aside from 2020. But yeah, it's it's an interesting approach, I think, that Slate has, even though they've been in this space for again, close to two decades. Right. And I get the like, not trying to do the scale play in terms of we're going to have a billion different podcast shows. But at the same time, like, as you mentioned, their podcast business is advertising dependent and advertising is generally a scale game. So are they chasing scale in other ways? Like maybe not a bunch of shows, but, you know, more episodes of shows or other things in order to get the scale in terms of listenership that I would imagine the advertisers are demanding from them. Yes, actually, that's one of the things that we talk about closer to the beginning of the episode. What they're doing is more of a a frequency increase versus a series increase. So it means more episodes, more seasons of shows within a year. And that's, you know, intended to keep audiences locked in throughout the year, not just, you know, cyclical with other subscription-based companies, you know, seeing, uh, I think, you know, you look at Netflix who has a a little bit of an issue after a season of Stranger Things comes out and subscribers unsubscribe after that. I think what they're trying to avoid with having seasonal episodes is increasing the frequency of them so that they lock in those audiences throughout the year. What they're also doing is increasing some of their weekly programming to bi-weekly so that they have more episodes inventory to sell, in addition to increasing the number of seasons that take place in a year. So they're definitely going after more of a frequency play versus a pure quantity, I guess you could say. Interesting. All right. I'm curious to hear more, so I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Kaylee. Thanks, Tim. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm good, Kaylee. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. So this is a little bit of a, a meta episode uh, because we're focusing on the business of podcasting and kind of getting into advertising and, and different you know ad models of advertising within podcasting. Um, and so... I'm excited to chat about this because I feel like despite this being the Digiday podcast, we don't talk about podcasting as a 
you know, revenue line for publishers all that frequently. Um, it's been a, it's been a, a, a minute, I think, since we had this as a topic. So I really wanted to talk with Slate because I know that podcasting is a, a, a rather large portion of, of your editorial output and your, your business overall. Um, but I guess just to kind of like lay the, the stage, set the stage for our listeners, um, how many podcast series do you currently have in production at Slate? You know, it, it, uh, uh, between 25 and 30. It's, it's, it's a little bit of always a moving target, uh, but we have mm-hmm. uh, between 25 and 30 uh, shows that we, uh, that we produce. And it, it, it runs the gamut from uh, dailies uh, to weeklies to biweeklies to monthlies. And we have quite a few narrative uh, shows that, uh, that we kind of lean in on as well. Got it. Got it. Do you do most of that in house, or do you work with like third party production companies, or, or co producing with you know other um, audio, I guess entities at all, or, or how are you kind of, I guess, operationally putting out twenty five to thirty? Uh, yeah, you know we have um, it, it, this used to be more relevant than it is now, but we have two big podcast studios, uh, one in New York and our Brooklyn office, and one down in DC. Um, and so we historically have done uh, most of the production there unless we're on the road, you know, doing interviews or out in the field. Um, uh, that has, of course, since changed. Uh, but to answer your question, we do uh, the vast, vast majority of, uh, of our production in-house uh, with uh, our own O&O. Uh, we don't uh, currently actually have any third party um, production houses we're working with. That's not to okay, say that we wouldn't it. going forward. We just haven't found, I think, the right um, a combination of the right idea and the right financials to make that work. Right. Yeah. I think you know one of the so my colleague um, and I'll probably reference a few of her stories throughout this because uh, she's been following podcasting closely. But my colleague Sarah uh, Guaglioni, she recently wrote a story about. Um, a lot of I guess podcast publishers leaning more on. Um, third-party, I guess, production houses or, you know, co-producing as a strategy to kind of, I guess, maybe keep up is how she phrased it right now. But um, yeah, I guess it's an interesting kind of position to be in where maybe you have to do a lot of remote recording. So it's maybe putting a strain on, you know, the people in-house. But so your point is more so it's about finding the right partner, someone who can add something that you don't already have kind of going for you internally? Yeah. And also I think it, you know, we have uh, a big group of audio professionals on staff. And so we generally can, can we've got this waterline resource that we can use to do most of the stuff that we do. Um, you know, it would be different, I think. And I think we'd be more open to it if we were interested in going out and creating a seven episode season on blank. And you know, not have it be uh, a continuous kind of show for us, then to me, it makes a lot more sense to go find somebody um, that you, you you know and trust that, you know, financially, that's a variable resource decision that makes a lot of sense. Um, most of what we do uh, is, has got some frequency attached to it. So we're kind of always producing. And when that, that's the case, uh, a lot of times, um, like I said, I think we, we're not, we, we are absolutely open to it. Uh, that, that, that concept, we just haven't, we haven't figured out a way to make it work yet. 
And to your point about kind of the frequency of output, um, I was curious, you know, I know you have um, ongoing series with, you know, I think Slow Burn with, um, you know, specific focuses. Roe versus Wade was, you know, one um, you know, topic specific. I, I guess I was curious about your approach to doing, um, you know, seasons or I guess, limited series in, in podcasting and, and also getting into the role of like evergreen as well as, um, within the context of your, of your shows. I think that's something that, you know, we think about to a degree here is like each episode, we try to keep it so that it's relatively evergreen, but I'm curious, you know, the role of evergreen and, and how it dovetails with frequency of output, you know, what's, what's your kind of, standpoint on being on the newsier side of coverage versus having series that can, you know, stand on their own for months post-production? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's an excellent question and one we've talked a ton about. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you last year, I'll, I'll tell you kind of how we're looking at 2022. We launched, mm-hmm. we launched seven uh, shows last year. Uh, and as we thought about, you know, in the fourth quarter, third quarter of last year, what we wanted for 2022, one of the things that is driving our strategy, honestly, is a word you just used, which is frequency. And, you know, our our shows kind of are bifurcated between um, our narrative stuff uh, and then kind of everything else. And even when we look at our narrative stuff, we've kind of leaned into, you had mentioned our biggest one, Slow Burn. Our, our Wade was just, we just launched it uh, and just finished it actually when, when SCOTUS came out with their decisions. And that you know, that's the seventh season. Um, this was a little bit of a mini season. It was only four episodes. Um, uh, but you know, might there be another, uh, another shorter season later in the year? Maybe, uh, might there be two seasons next year that are a little shorter? Probably. Uh, and we're doing the same thing with our other two narrative shows, Dakota ring and one year where we'll, we're coming in with basically three seasons of six or seven episodes. Um, it allows us to do a couple things. One, we think it allows us just to kind of create a deeper engagement with our with our listener. So instead of them coming in and out once a year, they can come in and out two or three times a year. And I think we think that's important. But it's also really important for the advertiser. You know, you you come in uh, in a year and you do one narrative season with seven or eight episodes, say, and you know, it, it, there will always be some folks that we're going to come in and, and you're going to get in to advertise. But if a bunch of big advertisers, if they're not advertising during that time frame, you're not going to get them to, you know, for usually, uh, sometimes you can, but usually if they don't have something that they want to say, then you're not. So a frequency thing also allows us to have a lot more downloads and impressions available, uh, f- for when the money's available, basically. Um, and, and we're kind of doing the same thing on our non-narrative side. We um, we have several shows in development now uh, that will launch either fourth quarter or next year. They're all either weeklies or twice weeklies. Um, and we took three of our weekly shows from last year and we made them twice weekly shows this year. What next TBD, um, mom and dad are fighting and working. Uh, and so that, again, it, it kind of does two things. It, it's important, we think, for the audience, but it's also, it just gives us more inventory uh, to sell for the advertiser. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I'm curious to get more into that, like, audience piece of it. And I think one of the big 
at least ongoing conversations when talking about podcasting over the past couple of years is listener behavior changing to a degree during the pandemic. Um, I know I stopped listening for a while to a lot of podcasts, eventually got back into them, um, you know, maybe a year into the pandemic um, as my habits changed. But, you know, the commuting time, I think, used to be a big listening time for me. Um, I'm curious, you know, with maybe the frequency strategy that you just spoke about, um, how is that maybe in response to listener behavior changing? Have you noticed listener behavior changing at all? And could you get a little bit more into that like audience piece of it um, when you're talking about, you know, that frequency strategy? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been lucky. Our, our, uh, so for sure the first year of the pandemic, it was a little chunky. Uh, and we saw some some spikes up and down. We were a, a little unsure. You know, the, the platforms were also coming in and changing some rules. Uh, and so sometimes it, there is a little unclear exactly what is uh, driving um, uh, that. But uh, we, you know, we've seen actually growth uh, uh, this year and growth last year. Actually, uh, in, a, in a pure download standpoint, some of that uh, was launching new shows. Uh, some of it was uh, the year previous. We launched a couple of new shows. We have a our big weekly called What Next, which is our our daily news show with Mary Harris. Uh, you know that's doubled in the last year, um, and so that's really helped us, especially because it's a daily show. You know, and so from a you know weekly and monthly and yearly velocity standpoint, um, we have a tech show called TBD. It's the one I said we doubled to twice a week this year, um, but last year that doubled. Uh, and, and so there are, there are some of our shows that were kind of, they had jumped right out of their infancy stage and they were in kind of a high, uh, you know, the first couple of years that they're going to grow and find their place basically. And those shows, uh, we were lucky where those shows were kind of growing and finding their place when the pandemic was happening. Um, would those numbers have been better or worse had the pandemic not happened? I don't know. Um, but, uh, what, what I do know is they, they continued to grow. So it was good. So our, and I think for most, from what I understand from my colleagues and what I've read, um, that bump, that pandemic bump where that we lost some of that commuting time was kind of a, it was a blip, but it wasn't sustained. And most of that has now all come back. Uh, are they listening to it now while they're running in the morning instead of sitting on a train? Maybe, you know, are they listening to it now when they're making their breakfast instead of sitting on a train or in a car? Maybe. Uh, but it feels like as people's lives have normalized, They've kind of fit podca- podcasting bad in, back into their uh, their routine. Right. Yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, to talk about kind of like or give context to your audience size, I'm curious what your total listenership is at this point across, you know, all of the all of the podcasts you have in your portfolio. Yeah. In the beginning of this year, uh, it was about 120 million. Um, and is that is that downloads or listens? That's downloads. Or how do you measure that? That's downloads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh and I'm 100% sure that that will will blow by that number this year, based on how we're pacing. Um, we don't we don't use that mon- number uh, a ton in our marketplace because it's a teeny bit of vacuum number. Nobody really knows what it means. Like, is that big? Is it not? 120 million sounds big, but <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, but yeah, no, we're we're. Hey, listen, we're we're really happy with how we've grown. Though I will tell you, it continues to be. Um, a lot of work to try to grow a podcast, you know, it's, um, you have to kind of pull a ton of levers and, uh, we, 
we're lucky enough to have a bunch of shows already. And so we can use those shows to help grow uh, other shows, new shows, especially we have a website that is, um, you know, pretty decent size that we can use. And so, but you have to do a lot of PR, you have to stay close to the platforms. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of work that, uh, because there's a lot of podcasts out there and everybody's looking to grow. (laughs) Hey guys, this is Kaylee with a quick editor's note post recording to address what Charlie just said about Slate's total downloads. Slate actually had about 150 million total downloads in 2021 versus the 120 million downloads he just mentioned. The company is also projected to exceed that number in 2022, although it did not say what that estimation is. Some listeners might also recall that Charlie was on the Digiday podcast in 2019. At that point, he said that Slate had 180 million downloads in 2018 and was expecting to top 200 million downloads in 2019. The reason for that decrease three years later is that the total downloads in 2018, as well as 2019, included the downloads from a network that the company no longer counts towards its own downloads in the Slate Podcast Network. All right, back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I think one of the biggest challenges with podcasting, um, you know, talking to various people in the industry is the discoverability and how it really, I think, unlike a lot of um, other mediums and maybe even, uh, you know, distribution platforms, it takes a lot of internal, to your point, PR or marketing to make your audiences aware that, you know, a new project is coming out because if it's not featured on, you know, Spotify podcast or, you know, Apple, then how are people going to know about it in a way. I'm curious, you know, what portion of uh, revenue to Slate is driven through podcasting? Like how big of a business is podcasting to Slate's, you know, overall annual revenue? Yep. So this year it will, it will probably and almost get to 50%. Uh, We'll see. Um, A lot of that, you you know, always depends on how the other lines are growing. We kind of have three lines of business here, right? We have our our digital uh, business around slate.com. Uh, we have our audio business and then we have a, a subscription business that is that we're leaning into quite hard. Uh, and, you know, we attribute uh, a lot of those new subscribers to our podcasting for sure. Um, uh, usually depending on what platform or program or actually depending on what kind of listener comes in or user comes in podcasting, a lot of times is the number, number one, two or three reason they, choose to be a subscriber. Um, I'll give you a little bit of an example of what we've done lately. Um, when SCOTUS came out with all their decisions uh, in the last couple of months, we have a podcast called Amicus. Uh, and it's you know our, our podcast about the law, basically. Uh, and that was a great time for us to lean into uh, uh, what was happening. And so we did a lot of extra episodes uh, of Amicus and we took three uh, and made them only available to Slate Plus listeners. Um, and we had the best uh, Slate Plus month in three years. Um, and a lot of that had to do with that. So it just gives you an idea of how we use audio uh, and how we are able to monetize audio, not just for advertising, um, but for to, tr- to drive um, loyalty and, and subscription money as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask how subscriptions um, gets tied into to podcasting. I know that uh, member-only episodes um, or even you know, using platforms like Patreon, I think is a way to kind of paywall some exclusive content in that regard. Um, 
So were you kind of advertising those specific episodes as, you know, member only to get to drive conversions or, you know, were you able to kind of really track to see who was coming in just for, you know, that content in particular? Oh yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Dahlia uh, promoted the shows on, on the regular uh, open ad supported shows. We supported it on, uh, uh, on all our platforms, member only and on our, on our website. And then um, from an ad standpoint, you know, we kind of have, we have two ways to monetize. Uh, by by far, the biggest uh, way is uh, just general uh, direct sold ads, um, and that has been a really, really good, healthy business for us. Uh, knock on wood. Um, that that business for us is bifurcated, uh, mostly between kind of two cohorts of advertisers. There's the direct response advertisers that have historically supported the you know the podcast business, uh, and then uh, you know most recently, when I say most recently, the last through four or five years, um, the brand advertisers have really started to come in and, and, and lean in and um, I think understand its value and start to put some money behind it. Uh, and I think that's what's really driving the growth of it as a whole is that new set of advertisers that are coming in. Um, uh, and that's been, that's been great. Uh, and then we, we kind of backfill uh, the stuff that we don't sell. Um, we started a company here called Megaphone that um, well, got rebranded to Panoply uh, and then uh, uh, sold to uh, Spotify. Um, and so now it's called, I think, the Spotify Audience Network. Uh, we use that. We use Megaphone. That's our CMS. And so we use, we use that network to uh, backfill and, uh, the stuff that we haven't sold in order to monetize that way. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of- how- is, that, is that backfilling with like programmatic uh, placements and, and things of that nature? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's technically not programmatic, uh, but it's uh, it, it, it's. I think it's technically not prog- programmatic. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's not the way Spotify sells it. But they have a group of people out there selling audience across that network. Um, right. What is it? Maybe dynamically placed. It's definitely dynamically maybe inserted it's for sure. All, all of our stuff is, um, but. Uh, I think they, you know, they 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 have a, a big group of partners that they uh, have created a giant, you know, ad network, if you will, and then they're selling across mm-hmm. that. Um, so it's a small part of what we do, but not insignificant, uh, honestly. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Getting back into, I think, the direct sold um, side of things for now. Um, you mentioned that you know direct response advertisers have been maybe the lion's share of, of partners that you've worked with um, for some time. And then uh, brand advertisers have been coming into the mix. I'm curious, you know, um, looking at the, I guess, segments of advertising length, I guess you can call it. Um, there's a few different, obviously, formats for advertising, um, as you obviously would know. But one of the formats I'm curious about is kind of the custom, like longer, you know, two to three minute long ad spots that have been maybe more frequently occurring, at least in the podcast I've been listening to as of late. Um, I'm curious how you kind of segment the share of of longer ads with shorter ads um, within a podcast episode, because I feel like um, that could impact listening you know, experiences, right? But I'm curious also from the the sales standpoint, which 
advertisers might be interested in, in buying a, a larger, longer ad, which I think tends to be more expensive versus others who are just okay with that like 15 to 30 second ad spot. Um, but yeah, are, are longer ads kind of a, a common selling point that your your team kind of goes after? Or, or what's the what's the f- breakdown of, of ad length that you're prioritizing right now? Yep. Um, so first, I just want to correct you on something that uh, I may have said wrong, but the, the DR, as a proportion uh, of our advertising, our DR partners used to be the majority uh, several years mm-hmm. ago, uh, and now, you know, not so much at all. So oh, okay. majority of our advertising dollars come from brand advertisers now. Um, oh, and our okay. direct response advertising dollars have continued to grow, but really that's a ref- reflection on the fact that the it's how... It's how quickly the brand advertisers have come into the whole space, but into Slate as well. Um, so to your point, though, about longer ones, it is it is absolutely a strategy of ours. Listen, Slate, we are not ever going to be like we're not chasing scale. Like we just we know we can't win that game. Um, it's honestly kind of not what we can deliver anyway. We're all about trying to deliver a, you know, kind of a, an engaged, curious, uh, educated listener, you know, uh, and so. We're about you know a premium engaged audience, and so we're not going to be able to run out of run after scale. So what does that mean for us and our ad formats and how we approach that? It is that um, for the advertisers that want to work with us this way and that want to be creative, you know, we want to understand their business the best we can. We lean into host reads in a really aggressive way. We know they work. All the data out there proves it. If anytime that you can get a host to sound authentic and intimate and personal with somebody's ad message, great. Um, we have a lot of kinds of ad units uh, besides those 50s and 30s that you that you talk about. We definitely have 60s and 90s and sometimes even longer. We we have names for them, right? We, uh, we have enhanced host reads, which means uh, that the hosts will spend quite a bit longer, maybe a minute, tell a story about your product, uh, be personal. Uh, we have what's called branded mini features, which means we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, more, we'll produce something, a little um, 90 second or two minute uh, feature. We'll have a lead in in, in the pre-roll and then it'll kick to a, a longer unit in the middle. And then we go up, we, we've done custom seasons for a lot of people actually of, you know, right now we're in our third season with Century 21. Um, it's a show called Relentless, super proud of it. Um, and we've driven almost a million downloads to three seasons of uh, of that show. But to go back to your original question, yes, we always have to think about the UX and we want to make sure that listener experience isn't getting, um, isn't getting, we want to make sure the show isn't getting too cloudy and advertising. Of course, we do a lot of research. We do a lot of surveys uh, with our readers. Uh, I, I think our perspective is if done right, most listeners don't mind the advertising. Um, if done uh, not right, you know, that's going to be a problem. And so that's the line that we, of course, have to walk all the time. Um, we think we do a pretty good job. Uh, I think sometimes when it, when it gets to be a challenge is when, I don't know, fourth quarter comes and, you know, a lot of shows are full and we just have a lot of advertising and, uh, you know, it's not ideal. I, I, I kind of personally think the, the listeners come to expect it a little bit, but, you know that's when it becomes uh, a challenge for us, uh, where we've got to we've got to really watch it carefully. 
Yeah. I mean, do you have a kind of maybe formula for breakdown of how many ads you'll allow in like an hour-long episode or how many uh, of the maybe 90-second to two-minute spots are allotted for a certain length of time at all? Yeah, we have a we have a formula based on the length of a show and our shows vary hugely, right? Uh, anywhere from 25 minutes to an hour and 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, but yes, we have a we have a set amount of spots that sit in those shows. Um, so like when talking to an advertiser, right? Like I think one of the articles I'm kind of referencing right now is uh, again from my colleague, Sarah, and it, it's talking about how during the podcast upfronts, there was this, um, a lot of pitching of the two to three minute long custom ads. Um, I think, you know, something along the lines you said of like a host read, uh, you know, adding a personal anecdote, maybe making it more of like a, a mini infomercial, uh, I think is what sh- someone had called it in her article. You know, that was a widely pitched kind of format, um, mainly because I think the she had said the CPMs were in the range of $75 to $80 um, versus, you know, a more traditional host red, which is in the neighborhood of like $25 to $30 um, for CPMs. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious, you know, when talking to an advertiser who might be willing to pay that higher CPM for the the custom placement. Do they express any concerns about, you know, running next to another, uh, you know, very custom high touch ad um, that's, you know, equally trying to win audience attention? Or I guess like how much concern is there from advertisers about, you know, who they're running next to or, um, you know, competition for uniqueness, I guess, in in an ad um, it's a good spot. question. I should have touched on this uh, before is that we will never put two of those big high touch ads in the same episode. Mm-hmm. So that, that is, you know, one of the rules so that you're not going to have that. And that to your exact point is a, is a UX decision as well as an advertiser decision um, that, that would not happen. We don't get a lot of pushback on CPM and those usually the advertisers that are wanting to lean in and, and tell a story and, and be really uh, bespoke about that want to pay a premium for that kind of product. You know, that's exactly what their strategy is, is a little bit, like I said before, you know, those folks aren't, it's not a shotgun approach. They're not looking for as many and as wide eyeballs or ears as they can. They're looking to reach a certain uh, cohort of people uh, in, in a way that is meaningful. And, uh, and so for the most part, we get very little pushback uh, for the people who want to do that kind of thing. Going back to that kind of, you know, direct response versus brand advertiser, um, you mentioned obviously brand advertising is a larger portion of the clients that you work with now, but um, is there one or the other that's more focused on maybe paying for that, you know, high touch custom um, ad placement versus another, or is I think in direct response, there tends to be some sort of like, you know, push to act on a, a certain deal or, you know, use this code right now kind of thing. Um, is, does one advertiser type versus the other, you know, prioritize the high touch, like longer custom versus like the shorter ad spots, or um, does it, I guess, not really tend to favor one or the other? You know, I would say that we've done it uh, with both. Uh, we do it quite a bit more with brand. I think that what you said before, the uh, the DR guys have had a, a long history of data. They kind of know, a lot of them know what works and what doesn't for, from the data that they have. And um, uh, and they've got that, they've got a, a pretty a pretty tied in model. 
um, that they follow. Uh, but we've done it with that, with uh, quite a few of them. Uh, so that's not, that's not a rule in any way, shape or form, but, uh, but generally speaking, the brand folks are the ones that lean into it more. You mentioned that, um, advertising is revenue for podcasts is growing. It's grown in the past year. Um, I'm curious, like by how much you've seen, like maybe year over year growth with this area of, uh, of revenue. You mentioned also brand partners are, or brand advertisers are growing pretty rapidly as a, a bigger share of clients that you work with, but how much has this revenue kind of, um, increased over the past couple of years? You know, uh, we have grown double digit growth in our audio business, uh, every year, except, uh, we had a hiccup in the pandemic year, uh, where our, you know, our, our kind of middle of March to middle of June or July, uh, you know, was really, uh, quite soft. Uh, and then it came back really, really strong. Uh, but, uh, it was tough to make up that, uh, deficit. But other than that, uh, we've been growing double digit, sometimes a lot higher double digits than others, but it's been a, a really, really good business for us and for Slate, uh, and one that is, becoming more and more important, you know, for our overall business. Right. Absolutely. And I'm curious, you know, one of the things I think we've been following at Digiday over the past couple months now is the advertising industry's reaction uh, to what is, you know, expected to be a recession period and what that's doing to budgets. I'm curious if you've noticed any maybe changes in, in advertiser behavior, if they're asking for different, less expensive ad placements recently, if there's been any changes in, you know, types of advertisers that are that are coming to you. Um, Kaylee, re- recession is like Voldemort. It's a name we don't say here at Slate. <laughs> we don't say that right. name out loud. Noted. <laughs> uh, so uh, listen, knock on wood, no. We just had our best quarter, our second quarter in several years. Uh, uh, but I also have seen that turn on a dime, uh, you know, uh, so of course it's something we're thinking about. Uh, it has not, uh, yet, uh, caught up to us, but it is something that we are very focused on. Yeah. I think that's the shared kind of thoughts from, from the people I've spoken to. I mean, advertising, I think, uh, in different products or on different, you know, even like categories of advertisers are obviously very, um, but it is interesting to see. I feel like digital advertising revenues might have been the ones that are starting to feel it a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, some of these you know larger products that have more maybe custom direct sold relationships might be able to withstand some of this a little bit more. Yeah, and it's exactly but, yeah. what you said. It's all about categories of business. Like during the the pandemic. We do, we do not, we have some, uh, of course, of both, but travel, you know, travel, for instance, uh, was not a huge category for us of advertising and historically has not. Um, so when literally that all went away, uh, you know, that didn't hurt us as much as some. For sure. I think from what I've heard so far, I mean, to no surprise, crypto advertisers have been uh, pulling budgets very quickly the past couple of months. Those are the ones I've heard. Um, travel, on the other hand, unlike the pandemic, has been doing great. Um, but yeah, something to something to follow closely. Yeah, I know for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I wanted to talk again a little bit more about, you know, the relationship of the subscriptions business with 
podcasting. And I'm I'm curious to know if you're looking to do more of those like member only podcasts, whether or not it's an entire series that's dedicated to just subscribers or how you're looking at the relationship between those businesses a little bit more directly. Um, Because you had mentioned that the subscriptions business did really well when you gated a few episodes of um, your one podcast right after the the Supreme Court. decision. So what's the what's the kind of next step there to kind of capitalize on what you learned from that experience? So that was a, the amicus example I gave you was just our most recent one, but we do we we have a lot of tactics. Uh so we uh we sometimes do special segments where you know the host would be like, "Hey, and if you're a Slate Plus subscriber, uh stick around uh because we're going to do this interview with so and so." Uh and so we do that on some of our shows uh we do special episodes and other shows besides Amicus. Um, you know, we're looking at taking some of our uh, narrative programming um, and we're testing kind of this right now and maybe walling off. Uh, I'll give you an example. This is not, what you know, this, this isn't something we're going to do, but it's an example of something that one could do is, uh, you know, we now have seven, seven seasons of Slow Burn you know, and they have a quite big back catalog listenership. Uh, you, you'd called it evergreen. Uh, and so, you know, we have quite a big monthly uh, listenership to that. So, you know, how many, it, it's all a math game, right? How, how much ad revenue do we lose, but how much subscription revenue do we gain if we say wall off the last two episodes of every season of that slow burn, um, where people will listen to, uh, you know, the majority of it, get into it and then become a subscriber to listen to the rest of it. So that's a tactic that uh, we're kind of playing around with as well. Um, it's not new, uh, but uh, we have not done a ton of it. So, so yeah, so that, you know, bigger picture. Yes, we are going to be leaning into uh, this, our, our, our slate plus, which is our subscription business, is uh, a, an important focus for us and we want to grow it um, aggressively. We just raised price recently. Uh, and, um, we're going to be aggressive with our audio, more aggressive with our audio in order to grow that business the best we can. How big is your subscriber base currently? So we don't, um, we don't share that, but I will say that, uh, you know, that our plus business has doubled in under two years, uh, from a, a revenue standpoint. Um, so yeah, it's important. It, 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 it went from being, you know, not an unimportant line in our business to becoming a very significant driver of a part, a portion of our business. And um, yeah. And so uh, it's, uh, you'll see us experimenting more in audio. You'll see us experimenting more in slate.com as well uh, in, in order to, in our newsletters, in order to uh, be as aggressive with that business as we can. Do you, I guess, like I, maybe it's the, and maybe this goes back to your frequency strategy building as or increasing frequency as well. But I think one of the you know concerns with a subscription. I mean, you look at like a Netflix model, for example, and the drop off that they get after you know a season of Stranger Things ends. Um, do you you know in kind of tying in some of these subscriber only um, episodes or uh, you know bonuses? Do you notice any types of like drop-offs post uh you know people signing up for maybe the trial offer in order to get uh you know that one episode of of slow burn that they couldn't get otherwise or uh, so what are the retention strategies to avoid some of that spill off 
it's not really a retention strategy is is it is trying to create enough data to be able to know what our expectation is uh, for a program like that. You're always gonna you're always gonna get uh, people at the top of the funnel. The question is how many people stick, and, and so the better that we can understand that, uh, the more then we can start um, you know creating strategies and programming that you know that financially makes sense uh, because we know what the outcome is going to be. Do you know? You mentioned at the beginning of the episode that uh, you have some expectations that 2022 will be a good year for uh, the business overall. What are what are some of the plans for the back half of the year to keep the podcast business growing and keep it um, you know competitive for advertising revenue? If if there does happen to be the you know, will not say it, but you know, R word. Ooh, good. That was good. Um, yeah. So from a programming standpoint, we have uh, a couple of seasons of decoder, a couple of seasons of one year, um, b- both in the back half. Uh, the three shows that I talked to you about that uh, we went from one uh, one week to two weeks. Uh, you know, we did that in first quarter. Uh, they are uh, they, they are now kind of uh, up and running, and that is going to really help us in the back half. Um, we are our cut our, our we call it Slate Studios, but it's our marketing team that makes a lot of uh, not only the bespoke you know branded mini features and enhanced host reads, but also the the bigger uh, seasonal stuff um, for customers. Um, we have several uh, that I think we'll be able to announce in the back half that are new, uh, and that those are real revenue drivers for us. Um, so yeah, a lot a lot of exciting stuff. Uh, I think uh, I think it's going to be a good a good year. All right. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. All right, Katie. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. 